Welcome to Displaced, a podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon, and we are your co-hosts on the show. We would love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcasts. June the 20th is World Refugee Day. So today we're going to be focusing on the resettlement enterprise in the US, how people get in and what the process looks like. And we're delighted to have Wilmot Collins, who is the mayor of Helena, Montana, to talk to us about that. He was resettled from Liberia following the brutal civil war there that killed over 250,000 people and left 1.9 million people displaced. And we're going to be touching on the question of politics and how you, as a refugee, uh, cope in the, the current political environment, and also his experience of being resettled into the US. Refugee resettlement has been under threat since President Trump was elected, yet it remains one of the core pillars of the refugee system. It is the process through which refugees are resettled to a third country and is one of the most life-transformational opportunities that we can offer refugees, Um, yet that has been decreasing. The IRC is one of the nine resettlement agencies in the United States who resettles refugees across over 20 cities. And uh, it's, it's worth understanding both the underbelly of it, how it happens, not only because it's a life transformational opportunity, but because it's also one of the most extensively secure processes that we have for entering the United States. Wilmot Collins, we are so grateful to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're going to start with the fact that you are a Liberian refugee who has resettled in the United States and ultimately ran and recently became mayor of Helena, a town of about 30,000 people in Montana. We're going to hop into that race in just a minute, but can you paint a picture of Helena for us and what it's like? Well, Helena is um, its a small capital city of Montana. It's... Um, About 31,000 people here, but we also have um, what we call the valley and surrounding areas, and those areas do not exist without the input of Helena because they all come to Helena for jobs. They come to Helena for entertainment, shopping, and everything else. But um, if you know a little bit about Montana, you will know that the the demographics of Montana is 92% Caucasian, 5% Native American, and 3% others. And I happen to fall within the others because uh, we're so many other little groups, but we're too little to um, be considered a percentage. That's that's a great that's a great uh, picture of it, and and gets to I think some of the interesting. Uh, uh, demographic dynamics. Yeah, and you—I mean—you ran for government um, at a time of profound anti-refugee sentiment when it was becoming increasingly okay to be vocally anti-refugee. And I think President Trump won the state of Montana by roughly 16 percentage points, and the county yeah. St. Helena also swung Trump, though I think at lower rates. How did you talk about being a refugee during your campaign for mayor at this uh, particular time? You know, the the people of Helena—they've uh, known me for a while. I have been I've been involved in everything from coaching soccer to singing in my church to being on the board of director for the United Way. So I've been very involved in the community. So um they basically knew who I was when I decided to get out there and run. So a lot of my uh refugee status didn't come up during my, you know, during the various forums that I had with the incumbent. 
it didn't come out at all. Most times what came up was whether I was in favor of removing the Confederate fountain. You know, Helena had one of the, I think the only Confederate fountain in the Pacific Northwest. I think we had the only one remaining and uh, we removed it uh, last year around September, I think, September, October. The people of Helena know who I am. They knew I came here as a refugee. They knew I became a permanent resident and then later became a citizen. So it wasn't anything And was that ever used against you? Did your opponents ever try to um, mobilise a a base because of your refugee status? Not in Helena, no. No, but I mean, you know, in uh, I remember uh, someone sending, uh, there was a news article on where he did that in other in other cities. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it uh, happened in other cities where it's not in Helena? What's your kind of read on um, what kind of drove those two di- different types of experiences? Do you know, I, I, I think the people of Helena, uh, they don't just go, by, go with the wind. They listen, they evaluate, and then they make a decision on what, based on the evaluation, because um, we, we were together. I mean, the incumbent and I were... We had several uh, uh, forums together, and they listened to us. And um, I knocked on doors. I gave them my platform, and I told them, "This is what I'm. Uh, this is what I'm going to be doing for the city." Unlike the incumbent, I don't think he did what I did. I had to work hard because my name was unknown, even though I was in the community. It was still an unknown name compared to the incumbents who's been there for 16 years. Going back to your kind of initial observation on the uh, racial demographics of Montana and saying that, uh, you know, Montana is roughly, you know, 90 plus percent Caucasian. And the fact that, you know, you were not only kind of the first uh, refugee to be elected mayor um, in Helena, but you're also the first black uh, mayor in Helena. And I would love to hear how those two different parts of your identity interacted for the electorate. It sounds like being a refugee was not as prominent, um, but I wonder if it interacted with race in any ways. Well, I'll tell you what, (laughs) I did not, and to be truthful, I did not know I was going to be making history. And it was surprising Mm -hmm. to me when I got that first call on election night from Huffington Post asking me, how does it feel to be to be making history? I was shocked. I said, what are you talking about? I just became mayor, that's all. He said, but you're the first, <laughs> yeah, you know. He said, but you're the first African-American refugee mayor in the Montana state history. And I said, oh, geez, I didn't know that. And then it blew up from there. But um, yes, the notoriety was was overwhelming. I think it still is because... Be, I am invited to almost every event in this town, unlike what was happening before. I'm a very hands-on person, so and people see that, and they want the mayor to be involved in those things, so I'm there for them. And has being a refugee will not in any way affected how you think about governing? It has, because I don't let, I don't let the little things move me. I always sit down, I talk through them, because I've been there. I know what it is to be a refugee. I know what it is to go through hard times. And when people start, oh, when people believe they're giving me a hard time, I sit back and in my heart, I listen and almost want to giggle because it's easy time. And uh, I think it's prepared me for the difficult task ahead. It's prepared me to be able to talk to people, 
to be able to be honest, to be able to work with a variety of people because all of that I did during my journey as a refugee. I was able to communicate with, with a wide variety of people. And so all of that has helped me along the way. When it comes to actually resettling refugees, obviously this is primarily a, an issue for national government. Right. The federal government is responsible for uh, determining the number of refugees who come in, uh, which type of refugees come in, vetting them and so on, with comparatively less engagement from city governments. At the same time, I think particularly in Europe, there's an increasing push for municipal municipal governments to become more involved in launching refugee-sensitive social services to both refugees and local communities. I'm just interested in what role do you think, if any, there is for local government in uh, either providing refugee services or at least bringing communities together so that they cohere? You know, um, I know uh, Missoula, the city of Missoula started that. They have the International Rescue Committee in Missoula. And as a matter of fact, when they started the program, of course, you know, some moms got together and wanted this to happen. They didn't know what was going on. I met with them, we talked about it, and uh, they later found out that this is not as easy as we thought, but they didn't relent. They contacted each and every member of the community that, that they wanted IRC involved. And, you know, usually when you have um, one of the resettlement agency in the city, the next closest point has to be at least 100 miles away. And... Um, in my opinion, I will do whatever I can because I know the, the, the I know the caliber of refugees that we get into this country. My story is not unique. I know that I've met a lot of doctors, I've met a lot of nurses, I've met a lot of social workers, lawyers, dentists who came here just like me as refugees and have turned the page and are contributing to those various communities. And right now in Missoula, Missoula is so rich with the, the, just the diversity that the, that the refugee brought to that community. So I will support and continue to help refugee in whatever possible way I can. Yeah. And uh, the IOC, as well as a few other of uh, resettlement agencies, have presences in Missoula and Montana and have historically resettled refugees there, although it's been decreasing in uh, recent days. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But this is a perfect moment to transition but to your personal story. As, as, let me just add yes, one please. last thing. There is only one state in the nation that does not have a refugee resettlement office, you know, and that's Wyoming. But guess what? Their largest elementary school, the principal of that school is a refugee. In Wyoming. In Wyoming. And I know him personally because we were part of the United Nations Refugee Congress. And he is doing a phenomenal job in Wyoming. But they don't have a refugee resettlement office. So you see, we're all over the place and they're making their marks. They're doing what they need to do. So we're going to get into um, how we uh, improve and think about the whole resettlement of refugees in the US. But before we do that, I'd love to learn more about your own personal story. Because I think in 1990, you fled to Ghana to escape the brutal civil war in Liberia. Can you tell us a bit about that experience of being displaced and then the process of arriving in the US? Yeah, you know, uh, I grew up, my, my parents worked for Firestone Plantation Company, Firestone Tire and Rubber. I'm sure you all heard of Firestone Tire and Rubber. We lived a middle-class mm -hmm. life. And uh, my mom was superintendent of schools. My dad was a civil engineer. And we, we lived well. 
I went to a Catholic boarding school for boys. And then later on, I went to Ricks Institute Junior College in Virginia, Virginia, Liberia. And then I went to the University of Liberia and got a bachelor's in political science and sociology. And life was great before the crisis. And I started teaching at an international school called the SOS Children's Village. It's in every country. It's even here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. They have a head office in New York. Life was well. I went to the University of Liberia on a tennis scholarship. And, um, and when Charles Taylor entered Liberia, December 24th, 1989, and systematically started to take over the country with the present government, with the Samuel Doe's government refusing to bow out and leave, things got really terrible because um, we didn't have any, uh, the lights were gone, water were gone, phones were gone, and life became almost unbearable. I lost two brothers in that war. One was killed by the soldiers and one was killed by the rebels. When the um, rebels started coming closer and closer to Monrovia, uh, my wife, at the time my fiancé, was uh, in medical school, so we were at the medical dormitory. And during the evening hours, we will go to the Catholic hospital. There was a Catholic hospital there where that was still open. We would wear white jackets and pretend to be nurses or doctors. And this day, we were there when the soldiers came and raided that hospital. And the doctors told us they couldn't secure our safety anymore. We had to leave. So my wife and I fled and went to my sister's home. When we got there, the rebels had attacked that area. And we were on the floor. We were literally on the floor because bullets were flying through the house. We were on the floor for over 48 hours. And then finally we heard, get out, get out, get out. And we got out and ran to my family home. And while we were running from my sister's home to my parents' home, man, the place was littered, literally littered with bodies. We were jumping over bodies, jumping over bodies to go. We got to my parents' home and... um, the rebels hit that area also, and we decided the safest area in Monrovia now would have to be around the American embassy because they had the Marines there. And uh, when we got there, we were in the open. We had to combat the element because we didn't have a place to go then. And so we were just staying outside. And some lady recognized my mother and gave her a room in her house, but the room was just so empty. It didn't have any bed. It was just floor. But we were happy to take that room because at least we were out of the the weather. The uh, West, you know, and then West Africans around the country, realize, I mean, around the continent, realized that Liberia had gotten into a total chaos and they needed to bring some sense of peace. And so they got together and they created a peacekeeping force called ECOMOG, I think it's Economic Community of Military or something. But ECOMOG was the peacekeepers coming in to bring peace among the warring factions. But Charles Taylor refused to allow them to land because 
he thought they would stop him from becoming president because he had almost he had taken over the whole country except this the capital city and so they had to fight their way in and the peacekeepers fought their way in and landed and secured Monrovia and then they uh, told Liberians who wanted to leave the country to leave on board the vessel, the cargo vessel that the peacekeepers came on. And so we decided to leave. But um, we missed the first ship that came. And things got so dire. I, I still remember one time my wife and I went looking for food and we found toothpaste. And that's what we had for that day, toothpaste. Pepsodent toothpaste is what we ate. Another time we went and we got stopped at a checkpoint and this rebel was interrogating my wife. And he said, you know what? You're very lucky today. I'm done killing for the day. Get out of here. And we fled and we ran and ran and ran and never stopped. When the second ship came, we were determined to get on board. I called my mom, my brothers, my sisters. I said, we got to get out of here or we will die. And we prayed about it, and the next day was a Friday. Woke up early, decided to go to the port of Monrovia. And my mom said she wasn't going. My mom said, you know, last night I prayed about it, and the Lord is not leading me to go. So you guys go and leave me behind. And I couldn't in good conscience leave her. I said, the Lord is leading. I told her, the Lord sent that ship for us to get on it. Let's go. And she said, no. And she handed $5 to my wife and I. She said, go and God be with you. We took the $5 and we left. When we got to the port, the line to get on board the ship was more than a mile long. And we were at the back of the line. We stayed on line Saturday, Friday. We stayed on line Saturday. We stayed on line Sunday. Finally, Sunday at 9.47 p.m. My wife and I were chosen to get on board the ship. We didn't know where the ship were going, so we started asking, where is the ship going? Nobody knew, but we just wanted to get out, so we got on board. That's amazing. You you just got on a ship yes. uh, just to get escape, irrespective yes. of knowing where it was going to go. Right. And that was with your wife, but you, you left your mother behind at that point? Yes, because she was determined that the Lord wasn't leading her to go. And I thank God every day I did not convince her because... When I got to that port and saw the line, my mom would not have made it. But not only that, when we got on board the ship, the doors were closed at 10 o'clock that night. And it was estimated 10,000 people were on board the ship with only standing room. Only Mm -hmm. standing room. When we got on board that ship, we could only stand. And then the first night we stood up, the next day, early in the morning, we heard, crying, a lot of people crying, wailing. And then we heard splashing. People, loved ones had died on board that ship and they had to dump them overboard. And my mom was not too well. So I thank God that um, I couldn't convince her because if she had, if anything had happened to her on board that ship, I could not in good conscience throw my mother overboard. And all three days we were on board the ship, 
all three days, people were thrown overboard. They had died on board the ship. And we learned later on the second day that uh, the ship would first dock in Ghana. And I realized that the organization I worked for had an office in Ghana, but I didn't know where. We didn't know where part of Ghana we're going to land. We later on learned that we were docking in Tema, Ghana, and there was an office there. When we disembarked, I told my wife, you need to give me the $5. I need to go and find the sister organization, SOS Children's Village. So she handed me the $5. I hailed a cab, and I gave the address to the cab driver. He said, oh, I know where this is. I can take you there. I said, well, I don't have much. Will $5 be enough? He said, yes, that would be enough. I later on realized it would have cost me 50 cents. So this guy took my five dollars. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he took me to the village. So, you, so you're there in Ghana. I'm just interested in how you went from from there to being in the U.S. Yeah. So I'm in Ghana, and um, the director decided to take us in, and um, only if I could identify myself, and I couldn't because he asked for an ID. In those days in Liberia, traveling with an ID was almost an automatic automatic death sentence if you were recognized by someone who didn't like you or who thought you were from the wrong side of Liberia. So I didn't have any ID. But there are some kids that came on the first ship, and they came, and he said, if these kids can identify you, I'll help you. And he sent for the kids, and they recognized me, and they started crying. I was confused why they were crying. I went into the, and then I asked to use the restroom. When I went to use the restroom, for the first time in almost six months, I looked in the mirror and realized why the kids were crying. When they knew me, I was 176 pounds. When they saw me that day and I weighed myself, I was 92 pounds. 92 pounds. My wife was 87. And so they took us in. I started teaching in the school. My wife started helping out in the clinic. And my wife came up and said, I think we should go to America. I said, how do you suppose we do that? She said, well, I have family in Montana. And I said, one minute you say America, the next minute you say Montana. You got to make up your mind where you want us to go. She said, but Montana is in America. <laughs> so, but prior to the crisis, my wife was an exchange student, African exchange student. And she lived in Montana and went to high school. Hell on a high. In fact, the present governor, Governor Bullock, and my wife were classmates when they were in high school. It's a when small she was world. A, yes, when she was an a, a exchange student. She called her host family, and her host family were more than willing to help us, but they did not know how to. And so they, um, they contacted Carroll College. It's a local Catholic college here. And Kara College awarded my wife a scholarship to do nursing. And they put me on as her dependent. And when we went to the embassy to get her visa, we were denied and we didn't know why. And so her host family contacted her, the congressional leaders, Pat Williams, who was congressman at the time, of a U.S. congressman, Max Bacchus, U.S. senator, Conrad Burns, U.S. Senator, contacted all of them. And Pat Williams, the congressman, made several calls to find out what was going on. 
And we went back to the embassy and they told us they would award the visa to one of us. Either I go or my wife go. And I told them my wife has the scholarship, she would go. And so my wife left. They granted my wife the visa. And I realized the only way I would be able to join my wife, I had to register with the United Nations as a refugee. August 1991, my wife left Ghana and came to America. But two weeks before she left, we realized she got really sick. I took her to the hospital. And the doctor comes out and says, congratulations, Mr. Collins, you will soon be a proud father. And I almost lost it because my wife was going to school and we found that she was pregnant. And <laughs> she was going to be, I didn't mind her leaving, but then she was going to be leaving with our child. And I didn't know when I would ever see them again. So it put a little wrench in our process. But um, she convinced me. She left. and She came to America. In the meantime, I went and registered with the United Nations High Commission for Refugee. And I went through that refugee vetting process that people said that, that there, there is no process. There is a process because I went through it. It took me two years and seven months to go through that process. And finally, I was able to, well, they told me I have gone through everything I needed to do. So I will be joining my family in uh, Montana. And I called my sister. I had a sister in New Jersey. I called my sister in New Jersey. I said, hey, I'm coming to America. She said, you don't want to go to Montana. I said, why? She said, I visited your family in November, and I was there for four days. I didn't see any black people, and it snowed all four days. <laughs> and you don't That's want to freezing. go there. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me, right? She said, no, I'm not. So I called my wife up. This is in January. I called her. I said, hey, Maddie, how are you? She said, great. We're so happy you're coming. I said, yeah, but um, what's the weather like today? She said, oh, it's pretty warm today. It's 29 degrees. Think about it. I'm coming from Africa where the average temperature is 85, 90 degrees, and my wife tells me it's pretty warm at 29 degrees. I, I told She's her, trying to lure you in. I told her, you don't understand what's the temperature's like. Let me talk to your host mom. Her host mom came on the phone. And, hi, Wilmot, how are you? We're so happy you're coming. I said, what's the weather like? She's always pretty warm today. It's 29 degrees. And I'm like, 29? I thought water freezes at 32. So how can it be warm at 29? She said, oh, don't worry. You'll get used to it. I said, what is it when it's cold then? She said, oh, sometimes 30 below. I almost lost it. And yeah, I said, 29 is so warm comparatively. It's 60 degree difference. Yeah. So she told me. It gets cold at 30 below. So uh, my wife came back on the phone and I said, hey, um, has Jamie, our daughter, seen a black person? She said, oh, yeah, there's a black boy in my school. I said, you got to be kidding me now. She said, why? I said, you said it's getting warm at 29. It's cold at 30 below and there is a black boy. It means there's only one black boy in your school. Where is Montana? I was totally confused. But she assured me it would be a beautiful place to be. That is such an incredible story, Wilma. It does make me think uh, whether we are preparing uh, refugees when we resettle them for the acclimatisation and the weather challenges no. as well as we could do. No. Um, <laughs> clearly not. Um, can I just ask you, what was the thing, apart from the weather and the clothing, that most surprised you when you 
when you arrived in, in the US, but particularly from a sort of cultural or political perspective? The weather, and then you're talking about the food, and I literally didn't see any black people. And it, it and was, was that alienating? I mean, did, did that feel a struggle for you? Did, you? did you feel not at home as a result of that? A little bit, yes, it was. And then, you know, the, the, it was just, the system was different. I remember my wife, um, we went to, I said, when are we going to eat? Because in Liberia, our major meal is lunch. We Lunch is the big meal of the day. And um, I get into Helena and we had a sandwich for lunch. And I'm asking my wife, so when are we going to have lunch? And she said, you already did. And I said, what are you talking about? I ate a sandwich. She said, that's not, that's, that's, <laughs> and I struggled with that for a long time because lunch was supposed to be the big meal and dinner is like small meal. But here it's in the reverse. Everybody wait for dinner. And that was a shocker for me because I, and I couldn't, it was hard. I had to get adjusted to that. So yes, yeah, I don't think, weird. I don't think they're preparing us when it comes to the weather because I went through that cultural orientation. They talked to us about the country and all of that, but never told us anything about the, te- the weather, the, the demographics and all of that. So I struggled with that a bit. To put it a little bit in perspective now, uh, there are an estimated 22 million refugees and there are three durable paths for refugees. Local integration into uh, the area that they end up. So for you, that would have been Ghana. Voluntary repatriation back to the country of origin or right. resettlement into a third country. And right now, of that 22 million, an estimated 1.2 million are deemed in urgent need of resettlement. And that's primarily based on the assessment that uh, there's no opportunity for local integration or voluntary repatriation and that those people are are deeply in need of um, becoming resettled. But less than 1% of individuals are resettled um, ever. And part of your story that I wanted to hear just a little bit more about or put in context was asking you how long um, – you were both in Ghana and then the a little bit more about what actually going through the vetting process was like, because uh, as you were noting, there is an extensive vetting process. It's actually one of the hardest ways to get into a country like America. Um, yes. And so we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I remember. Um, so when my wife left and came to America, I decided to go back to Liberia because I, I, I didn't want to stay in Ghana anymore. And I actually went back to Liberia, and then the ceasefire that was instituted by the the peacekeepers, the ceasefire broke. And then I ended up in the Ivory Coast, which was even twice as hard, because when I got into the Ivory Coast, you know the Ivory Coast, they speak French. Mm -hmm. And um, part of that vetting process, I had to register with the UN, like I said, and the UN interviewed me, and they had to deem me incredible. And then they had to label me a refugee before. But they I had could, to deem you. They had to deem you incredible. Can you say had, what does no, that mean? No, they had to deem me credible. They had to deem the story. Ah. The, the story <laughs> you may also I be incredible. <laughs> no, not incredible, but, yes, but yes, credible. The story is credible. Yeah, an incredible person with a credible story. <laughs> Thank you. And so after I went through a series of interview with the United Nations High Commission for Refugee and. They deemed me incredible. They uh, passed me on to the authorities. And that's when I had to go through the um, the various security checks. That is, I went through the State Department interviews. Then I went through USCIS interviews. And then I went through the fingerprint. And the thing about it, if, if 
if there is any doubt, because I remember at one point I had to prove what I said. When I told them I went back to Liberia, I had to show them that when I fled the second time, it was out of fear of my life. So at that point, you're at a standstill until you prove to them. And then they will invite you again for interview for another interview. And these interviews don't come every other week. You're looking at when they invite you for an interview, it will take a, a few months. And then they invite you for another interview and take a few months. And so when I told them I did go back home to Liberia when my wife left, I had to prove to them that when I went back, because I thought it was safe because it was um, ceasefire. And life in Ghana was not as easy, and there's no place like home. So I went back, mm -hmm. but then the ceasefire broke, and this time I ended up in the Ivory Coast. There was no way, so I got back on the process, and I went through all these interviews, and then I had to do the medical, you know, and the medical would take forever. Then you go through a series of interviews again with USCIS, and after that, I think it was in the December of 94 when they put our names up on the board. But our names, they said, had to. And I remember there were three people, three people on the list that said needed further adjudication. And it was me. It was another, it was a prominent businessman in Liberia, Eugene Peabody. And the, the late Chief Justice of Liberia, his son, James Peer, the three of us, they said, needed further adjudication. So we didn't have a date to go. And so they had to check us further. In January, our name finally showed up on the list that we were leaving February 15th, 1994. By this time, my wife, we had our daughter. I had not seen her for almost two years. Yeah, that process was very intense because what people don't understand, what the average Americans don't understand is that the U.S. does not have to prove anything to you. The U.S. authority does. They do not have to prove anything. You, as the applicant, you, as the refugee, have to do the proving. You have to do this. You have to do that. And they don't understand. Some of them think that all of that is done in the U.S., which is wrong also because... All of that is done in the secondary country. You're trying to resettle in the third country, which is the U.S. So uh, let's take the journey on to when you actually arrive in the U.S. and that first 90-day period. Because in the U.S., um, the system involves a lot of support for a very short period of time. And uh, typically it involves helping uh, access housing and get a job. Those are the two main things that um, the resettlement process involves in the first uh, 90 days. I'd just love for you to paint a picture of what that process looked like for you that, that first few months. You know, I was a fortunate, now I was one of the fortunate ones because my wife was already living with a host family. When I came, I joined my wife and, and and moved in with her host family. So my whole family lived with her host family. And the, the host dad was the assistant principal at Helena High School, where my wife went to high school. And mom was an elementary school teacher. So every morning, for the, the first week I was there, every morning I would get dressed and go to town with him and go to the school with him and walk around the, the place. 
And I remember on my second week, I went a little further away from the school and I saw the, the state capitol. And I walked to the state capitol. And when I entered, I saw office of the governor. To my left was office of the governor and to my right was office of the secretary of state. And I decided to go and meet the governor. And I walked to the office and the receptionist asked me if I had a appointment. I said, no. She said, would you like to make one? I said, sure. And I was writing my name down and this gentleman came behind me and said, may I help you? I said, no, I'm here to meet the governor. He said, well, I am the governor. I'm Mark Roscoe. What can I do for you? And I stopped. <laughs> I looked at him. I said, well, I just came from Africa last week. I thought I should come and meet you. He said, what part? I said, well, Liberia. He said, oh, Liberia. Yes, that's where the slaves went. And the capital city is Monrovia in honor of James Monroe. I said, yes. He said, come on in. And he took me in his office and we sat down. He said, so what do you do? I pulled out my resume. I had a paper copy of my resume. I pulled it out of my pocket and handed it to him. And he looked it over and said, um, and he pressed his intercom and called his one of his special assistants. And, and he introduced me to her and said, how can we help Mr. Collins? And she said, she looked at my resume and said, oh, Inner Mountains Children's Home is looking for a counselor. Why don't you apply and use me as your reference? And the next week, I started working. I applied. That's and got amazing. My That's first your first job. entry into politics, too. <laughs> Walking <laughs> yes. to the governor's door. Yeah, a I walked week, straight A there. week after. Yeah. It's an amazing story. It does make me also think about there's a very big debate in the global resettlement industry between people who um, advocate for a sort of more European approach to resettlement, which is often involving uh, not getting a job immediately, but lots of education and social integration before you enter the labour market versus the sort of US approach, which is very much as soon as you get here, try and get you straight into a job. And and, and that work first approach can be um, potentially a route into more social integration. I'm just interested in your view of um, that debate and whether you think getting a job really quickly is a really good first step or whether you think a longer transition is 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 better. I, I believe the longer transition is more appropriate. I use my example as it was unique in the point, in the fact that I spoke English in Liberia and uh, I went to the university and my professor, the chairperson of my, uh, my department was from America, a Fulbright scholar. So I have some idea of what America was like. But unlike others who are from French-speaking country and only speak French and don't know anything but English, I believe the longer adjustment period will only help them because the language is a serious barrier if you don't know it. It's, I mean, what can you do? It's uh, it's interesting. One of the things that we know from um, academic research about refugee resettlement here in the U.S. is that language acquisition is one of the best predictors of um, employment and yes. integration just for all the exact reasons you said. Yes. And so figuring out how to 
uh, how to do that effectively and efficiently uh, is actually one of the key goals of, I think, the, the refugee resettlement enterprise. But I wanted to kind of ask a question about around, around the arguments for resettlement. So there are many great reasons to support ref, the refugee resettlement enterprise. I think on the political side, one of the things you hear often is that there's strategic benefits of the U.S. opening its door, signaling its commitment to supporting those who are vulnerable, um, and really taking a, a a stand, um, and that that has kind of beneficial geopol- uh, geopolitical um, uh, implications for the U.S. But I think I think two arguments that uh, we often hear in I think more day to day debate. I think on the economic side, there's an argument that you know, particularly in the U.S., we know that refugees are on average economic net contributors, uh, yes. which means that you know they pay more into taxes than they receive in benefits. And from a recent study by Evans and all, we know that about ten or eleven years is there. There's that inflection point at which they become net contributors, and and so there's an economic argument for bringing them in. But on the other hand, there's also just a, a values-based argument for bringing them in. That what makes us a country is the fact that we open our doors to people in need. In, yes. And so I'm curious I'm curious to hear how you think about the relative importance of each of those arguments particularly in in the current political landscape. You know, I've come to realize that the misinterpret the average Americans do not know the difference when it comes to the, to to immigrants and the immigration system. If you notice every negative thing that has happened in this country is linked to refugees. They basically, and but there, we all, there are different ways we come into this country, and there are different vetting processes we have to follow. Nobody is more vetted than the refugee. People, mm-hmm. there are there are asylum seekers who come to the U.S. and then they seek asylum, so they're already here. Refugees do not come until they go through that strong vetting process. So people just tend to lump everything, everybody as refugees, but. From research, you will notice that, and I I know refugees in all 50 states because I was on the advisory council for the United Nations Refugee Congress, and refugees in all 50 states are doing exceptionally well. Take for me, for instance, I came in two weeks later, I started working, I started contributing to the economy. I, I mean, I started coaching soccer, I joined my church choir, I... Uh, I mean, I got involved immediately because I had the language. So that's why I say the longer process will help a lot. But I immediately started contributing to the to the economy and to my environment, to my city, because I worked, I paid taxes. And then six months later, guess what? I joined the military. And January, June 1st, after 22 years, I retired out of the Naval Reserves. So... Come on, we, my, my daughter is active duty Navy. She's in the Middle East right now. My wife is Army Reserves. We contributed as soon as we started. As soon as we were able to, we did. And in my case, it was two weeks later. And well, right now, obviously, it's a very tough time for the whole refugee enterprise. Um, the Trump administration reduced the number of refugees being resettled to 45,000. And yeah. as a result of the bureaucratic strangling that's going on, an estimated 20,000 refugees are going to be coming in this year. And just to put that into context, you know, we have seen years with 10 times that amount let in. In 1980, yes. 230,000 refugees were let in. In 1993, 142,000 mm-hmm. refugees were allowed in. I'm interested in, given where you um, were elected and the, the, the 
the Trump supporters that you must meet, how do you make the argument to those people who are very antipathetic towards refugees that you know, they've got this wrong? And the thing about it is there, there's that 5% you can never get through to. So you don't worry about that. But there are others who are willing to listen. And believe me, if you're willing to listen, I am, you have no idea, I am all over this country. And the only thing I do is talk about the refugee resettlement process and the truth. Because everybody have the, the truth is not out there. I think what we need to do is start telling the, 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 the average American, the actual way refugees come here and who refugees are. Because the, the anti the anti-refugee people have put out there this narrative that they're bad people, they're terrorists, they're this. And I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people since I became mayor. And I tell them the truth. I tell them this is the process. And I am who you're talking about. And my story is not unique. But first, we need to let the truth come out. And for everybody who's willing to listen, I've been able to convince people. I've been able to tell them the truth. And when they ask questions, I tell them exactly what it is. But the truth is not out there, and we don't have enough ambassadors of the truth. So it's hurting the cause. That's absolutely right. And I mean, I, you know, I, I think about the fact that the vetting uh, process is one of the most extensive. It yes. takes 24 months on average. Minimum. Uh, and yeah. that. And that, as a result, has generated extremely low rates of uh, any issues associated with, associated with refugees. Uh, a Cato study um, suggested that uh, the chance of being murdered by a refugee terrorist is one in 3.6 billion each year <laughs> in the United States, yes. uh, which which is reflective of how uh, extensive that vetting process is. Exactly. And so these are the types of these are the types of facts that I think are really crucial. Wilma, when you try to make that argument and you say you're very successful in person, which I've got absolutely no doubt that you are, I just wonder whether, do you ever think that the reason that there is such um, potential hostility to, to refugees is not about refugees at all. It's just a symptom of a sense of disempowerment that people feel. And that the more we potentially talk about refugees, the more it sounds like we're saying we're not interested in your particular concerns, um, economic or social. Yes. Yeah. You are totally right. So I'm just right. interested in, if, if you think about how do you, um, is it right to, to talk more about refugees to, so that we uh, disabuse people of the myths that you've argued? Or actually, should we almost be um, not talking about refugees and finding common ground that bridges communities in a, in a different frame? I think we should do both of them simultaneously. I think we should be able to talk about refugees, but also be able to bridge that gap. I think doing both of them would, would be helpful because um, you can't hide the fact that we're here. You can't hide the fact that there, there are people who came here through and are legally here. People tend to say they're undocumented immigrants and this, and we're stealing jobs. And none of the above is true. But who are the ambassadors to tell these people that these things are not true? We don't have those people. And in the last seven days, I was in three different states. And that's all I was talking about in the last seven days, three different states. And so we need people to continue to talk about those things and engage people and engage people in a civil discourse and let the people know the truth. But yes, you are right, because people who are disillusioned with life, people who are disillusioned with what's going on, they tend to want to blame whatever 
There is. And they will blame refugees saying they're coming in to take our jobs, and which is inaccurate. When I came, I didn't take anybody's job away. There was a vacancy. I applied like every other American, and I got that job. We have to be deliberate in expressing the truth, the narrative of the truth. We are lucky because this episode will be released in time for World Refugee Day. So I'm curious, what will uh, World Refugee Day look like in Helena? Well, I'll tell you what. I want to spend it in Missoula where there is a more uh, uh, coordinated effort because there is an, the IRC office there and there is the soft landing uh, organization there. And they have, you know, they have almost 70 families, refugee families there have resettled in the last two years, two years. Yes. Yeah, so they have a more coordinated stuff in Missoula. And I intend to be on that end because um, Helena, we, it's not, we don't have anything going really. So I want to be able to identify with a more, I mean, with a more, vibrant group. Great. And, and we're just going to wrap on one question. So uh, in doing some background reading for this interview, I found out that you love karaoke. So oh, yes. I would love to know, what is your favorite karaoke song to sing? Surprisingly, <laughs> I do only country. Yeah, I love Brooks and Dunn. I love uh, Josh Turner. I do a lot of Blake Shelton. Yeah. All right. Well, ne- next time we come through, Helena, we'll do some karaoke together. Let's do it. Come on over. You're invited. Wilmot Collins, thank you so much for being with us on Displays today. Thank you so much, Wilmot. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Our team at the IRC would like to thank is Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, and Ben Moskowitz. And at Vox Media, our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Our associate producer is Jelani Carter. And our engineer is Jarrett Floyd. A huge shout out and thank you to Griffin Tanner this week. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love to hear from you. Drop us a note about anything you're feeling about the show or life in general. You can reach us at displacedatrescue.org. And we post show notes with all of the goodies that we discussed more in depth on the show at www.rescue.org forward slash displaced. See you next week. If you've made it this far, we know that we can count on you to see you next week. 